All right. Hello, everyone. This is the Chainlink God podcast, where we break down the information asymmetry on all things blockchain, smart contracts, and oracles. So today, we're going to cover the crypto economic security of the Chainlink Oracle network. So on the previous recording, we covered crypto economic security in general and how it's applied for networks like uh, Bitcoin proof of work and Ethereum proof of stake. And so this one will be kind of a continuation on that one. If you haven't listened to the previous one, then I would recommend to get context. But this one will specifically be about how crypto economic security works in the Chainlink network. So uh, today, again, I have the uh, crypto oracle on with me today. How are you doing? Yeah, glad to be on and discuss a topic that I know many people want to discuss. Yeah, this will be a good one. This is a long time coming. A lot of a lot of, a lot of information asymmetry in this one. So I think to just to generally start this off, how does Chainlink's crypto economic security works as kind of a broad summary? Yeah, sure. First, I think before we even discuss the different ways that Chainlink provides crypto economic security, there needs to be a fundamental understanding of the difference between Chainlink and a blockchain. And we've discussed this in depth, and so we're not going to go super in-depth in this. You can look at previous podcasts where we discussed this, but people need to realize that because Chainlink is not a blockchain, the way it provides crypto economic security is going to be a little bit different than a blockchain. Some of these ways will overlap, and some of the ways it provides crypto economic security will not overlap. So it's important to have that distinction. And the reason why is because a blockchain operates as a single unified network, providing us the same standard service to everyone on that network. Whereas Chainlink is what we call a heterogeneous network. So it can have millions of independent Oracle networks running in parallel. And each one of these Oracle networks can have their own crypto economic security that is customized to whatever those users of that network want. So, so each one of these Oracle networks is kind of like its own unified entity, but again, there are many of them and they, and they will be customized to whatever crypto economic security those users want. And you can think about it like each one of these Oracle networks is a standalone service for smart contracts. Whereas blockchain is kind of a one size fits all approach. It can't really be customized. And this is what makes it valuable but also there are a lot of limitations, which oracles then can help users overcome. Yeah, I think that kind of framing, it's when you have blockchains, they're very much like a, a singular monolithic network where it needs global consensus. But when you think about like, what is the Chainlink network? That's not actually technically a, a network where every node's connected, but it's more like a framework for building Oracle networks. And each of these Oracle networks can operate entirely independently from one another and do completely different services. So each Oracle network can have its own parameters to fit some specific predefined service that it needs to provide. So the security in that regard can be a lot more flexible, but what you're creating security around is uh, it's, it's quite different. Yeah, I know before you described it as a network of networks as opposed to like a single network per se. The other important distinction is that Chainlink provides consensus about the external state of the world, which is, can be much more subjective and unpredictable you know, external state is always going to be very specific to that particular application's requirements. And they might have different trust assumptions. You know, what, what I consider truth about the external state of the world might be very different than what you 
believe is truth about the external state of the world and the different trust assumptions that we have about what we actually think is trustworthy enough to actually automate an application. Whereas a blockchain is only tracking internal state of its own network. So it's using its current ledger, which is its previous, all the data that's been stored in this network over time, and then a standard set of rules. So, so this is very different for me trying to derive truth from the external world versus me just checking to see if certain conditions were met in my internal environment. So they're very uh, different. It's kind of like a closed internal environment versus an open external environment where there's lots of ways to de derive truth. And so when we think about verifying the external state, this can take on many forms. You know, we talked about before that people can customize this to their own parameters. So that can involve users may trust different data sources. Users may trust different relayers of that data on chain, which is essentially the nodes. Users may trust, may want more or less decentralization of the Oracle network and the data sources. Users may want different computations on what they consider is good aggregation methodology, or maybe they want multiple aggregation methodologies. Users may want different uh, options for privacy and data. And users may also want different update frequencies. So how often that data goes on chain. So all these different parameters are going to be defined in the service agreement and are really gonna define the crypto economic security that that network's providing. Also not to mention users may have different amounts of stake that they want the Oracle networks to provide to their network. Yeah, this, this like deep customization of how each chain like Oracle network works is pretty much the only way you're able to bring on such a broad diversity of different data types because what how you're gonna bring price data on chain is gonna be different than how you're gonna bring weather data on chain or how you're gonna bring randomness or proof reserves. Like each one's gonna have a different update schedule. Some may have a couple sources, some may have a lot of sources, some may be permissioned and they're paid APIs, others may be publicly available. And there's different types of computation that some nodes may be able to do and some won't. And so essentially each chain like Oracle node can specialize in its specific services that it can provide. And the nodes who specialize in some service can be composed together into a specific Oracle network with a uh, common service agreement defining which nodes, which data sources, all these different parameters for each individual network. So there's a lot of customizability and ultimately there's an unbounded number of combinations you could possibly create for Oracle networks. Yeah, and it has to be built like this if you're gonna be a standard because there's no way for all the Oracle nodes in a network to have access to all the different resources that needed to bring to, to service all the different types of uh, Oracle needs that smart contracts will have. It's not possible financially and just performance wise as well. And the other thing I was gonna bring up is that people don't see the customization aspect as much because they see the products that Chainlink currently has out or you know, the, the Oracle networks that are commonly used like price feeds, VRF, and those are kind of like bootstrap services for people that they can just plug and play and that have been kind of built by you know, experts. You know, people can verify how they're built and these kind of things. And so, yes, most people do use those, but again, you can build any type of custom Oracle network. And as we scale more and more, you're gonna see lots of different customized designs. Yeah, I think that's a good point. If you, if you try and think of like a, a different Oracle model where every node needs to be capable of doing everything and connecting to every data source, like it's, like you said, it's, it's completely impractical cost-wise. You know, if, if you're a specific Oracle node and you need connections to price data, sports data, 
to all these different data sets, like it's, it's not going to scale at all because nodes are going to be spending an insane amount of money just to support every possible data source that could ever be possibly wanted today and then into the future, which blockchains don't work like that. Blockchains just produce blocks and signatures. They don't need connections to anything. They, they work out of the box, but Oracle's, they need to be connected to things. And so by specializing, it's almost like a capitalism model where each individual Oracle network, each node can specialize in a specific service and they can hone in on providing the best possible version of that service for the lowest costs. So realistically, if you tried to have Oracle nodes do everything, you would actually be worse off. So this is really the model that you want for Oracle networks. Yeah, and it's also impractical. It's impossible from a access standpoint. Not all Oracle nodes are going to have access to all the resources required. Some things, you know, there's a lot of APIs that only certain people are going to have access to. And so if in that model, you couldn't even bring that data on chain or provide that service to a contract if you if all nodes were required to have access to it. So this is particularly for like enterprise use cases and things like that as, you know, smart contracts evolve. Okay, so that, that's kind of the distinction between Chainlink and blockchains, which is really important to understand why Chainlink, you know, has a slightly modified model of crypto economic security. So with that in mind, let, let's start defining some of the broad categories of crypto economic security for Chainlink. The first broad category is going to be around rewards. And, and the first and the rewards is just the incentive for the nodes to provide the service because they're getting paid. And, and the first one is a, a block reward like subsidy to Oracle networks. So it's not it's not technically correct to call it a block reward because it doesn't operate on a set schedule, but it's more like a, it's a, kind of like a dynamic subsidy, I think is the best way to, to call it. And so what the, so the, the subsidy basically subsidized the cost for bootstrapping Oracle networks into existence. And this is designed to meet the current demands of the market. And it kind of solves the, the chicken and the egg problem. No Oracle, no, no high quality Oracle nodes are going to provide data on chain if there's no users willing to pay for it. And there's going to be no paying users unless there's high quality Oracle nodes who are going are, that are already live. And so you have this chicken and egg problem. Whereas when you have a subsidy, you can bootstrap the supply side, which is the nodes providing data on chain and then users can consume it. And then that can start to snowball into a you know, self-sustainable network. The other thing this does is it bootstraps crypto economic security. Nodes have more certainty about their future outcome because there's a subsidy involved. So there's a clear opportunity cost to them misbehaving. And this particularly works well too in the beginning where you, you might have an initial pool of nodes that are whitelisted. And so if these nodes are misbehaving, they can be removed from the network. And, so, and, and you know, Chainlink does a multi-sig approach with this. You know, they have the team, the nodes, and then also users, which can sign a multi-sig to remove you know, malicious nodes from the network. And over time, you know, this can move towards a, a, where each network can define these uh, you know, removal of nodes within their own network. So it's kind of like each price fee could have its own government's framework for how to, how to manage its, the nodes that operate on that particular network. I think it's kind of key to point out is like, wh why do you need this kind of like administration multi-sig type design? Because when you're looking at Oracle networks and if they were just immutable, meaning it always uses the same set of nodes, always uses the same data sources, 
if a node becomes malicious or a data source becomes unreliable or you want to importantly if you want to increase the decentralization of your oracle network over time there has to be some type of administrator to coordinate that activity of adding removing nodes and data sources and so in the short term that's kind of bootstrapped by this distributed multi-sig with all these independent entities who have a lot of skin in the game with the teams and the nodes and the users but like you mentioned long term each oracle network is going to have its own governance scheme and that would be basically driven almost entirely by the users so the users would determine like the, the users would pull their fees together for a specific feed and then they would collectively vote and determine how are those uh pooled fees are going to be used how many nodes how much are they going to be paid how many updates like all, all these service agreement parameters are going to be defined by the users but in order to get to that point you need like a large network of uh users securing billions of dollars and so it's kind of being bootstrapped today with these uh multi-sig contracts for each each oracle network yeah i think the the point is that like a lot of these like oracle networks just like you know, money markets or synthetic assets, they're more, they're dynamic in a sense. They, they can change over time. Also, if you want to scale the security of them, or, you know, maybe a particular network is not as, as popular, you want to, you know, scale down the security perhaps, because it's, it's the costs are too much. You, you need to have a, a multi-sig in place to, you know, adjust these parameters because they're, they're very important parameters, not just for Chainlink, but for a lot of other DeFi protocols. And so by, by bootstrapping the supply side, you basically create a, a revenue stream for nodes. And as that revenue stream grows larger and larger, because you get more and more users, the subsidy is less needed. And so you, this, this really creates a path to self-sustainability. And, and I think another important, well, an, another point that people don't always think about is that the, you know, the Oracle subsidy is going to node operators. And in many ways, it's providing them capital they can so they can then use that which is in linked tokens to provide crypto economic security down the line so it allows them in the future to provide greater amounts of staking uh for crypto for crypto economic security of their services as opposed to like going directly to uh retail which aren't actually going to be providing crypto economic security which i think is a is a better model for the actual security of the network and the performance of the network yeah, I think I think kind of like one of the key points with this with this subsidy is like it's providing like guaranteed income to these to these Oracle nodes where the, the transaction fees can be very unpredictable. But if a node operator knows they're going to continue earning revenue from this uh, type pseudo block reward subsidy, then they'll have a stronger incentive to continue providing their services because there's guaranteed income in their future. So I think that's like it's a, it's a very strong incentivization and. We already see this being used at scale for like Ethereum and Bitcoin. Those those use block rewards to bootstrap and secure their networks. Their networks, like it's a very proven model. And so using it to bootstrap Oracle networks is kind of a, a large reason why the Chainlink network has the link token is so it can actually provide these uh, subsidies to bootstrap security. Yeah, like I encourage people to read our our uh, article on smart content about the reason you need tokens because all decentralized computation networks have a token to bootstrap the network without taking on debt. All blockchains have block rewards. Most DeFi, I mean, not everyone, but most DeFi protocols have liquidity mining. So they're all trying to bootstrap either the supply side or the demand side. And so if you don't, it's gonna be hard to compete with those that do, or, or you're gonna to have to take on a large amount of debt, which is, you know, it's gonna create other issues. 
And I think one of the important things to note that, again, people don't really discuss the nuance of is why, why you need like a dynamic block reward versus a standardized block reward like a blockchain. You know, a blockchain provides a set amount of rewards, you know, on usually on some type of time frame, like roughly every 10 minutes in Bitcoin, whereas the Oracle reward needs to be more dynamic. And the reason is, there's a few reasons, but the, the blockchains kind of provide a service on a standardized time frame. Like every 10, every 10 minutes in Bitcoin, it's going to approve a block. Whereas Oracles, you have a lot of different services running at the same time, all at different frequencies. And so there's a lot of issues like how do you know, how do you define what data is important to bring on chain and give a subsidy to? If you just had a standardized approach, you could just be bringing on a bunch of data that no one actually uses. And you're basically wasting a ton of capital. And if your goal is to build the uh, Oracle network that every that is servicing all the contracts out there, this is a complete waste. Also, some data needs to be brought on in different frequencies. So how do, how do you provide a block reward or you know a subsidy that that can that can support all these different frequencies? And also, you have chain, Chainlink is blockchain agnostic. So how do you issue a block reward when there's you know many different chains running at the same time that creates issues as well. So I think the dynamic, the real thing is that the dynamic block reward maximizes the value of it and can respond to user demand, which can change a lot in Oracle networks. Whereas a standardized approach cannot respond to that. And, and, and you have no way of filtering quality. And so again, you might have low quality data on chain or, or are oracles that are just providing data on chain just to get the block reward and then no one actually uses it so it's a, it can be a complete waste yeah i think that's a, that's a key point because if it was just anybody can get the block reward anybody can get it for submitting data there's no way a blockchain can verify what the data you're delivering is or its usefulness like that's a human element that's like the layer zero only humans can determine if this data is useful so you need to have some kind of coordination to determine we want to bring this type of data on chain and kind of a key point is a large part of this subsidy is ensuring that it's profitable for Chainlink nodes to uh, deliver data on chain, even during times of like extreme blockchain network congestion. And if you're using all this subsidy for garbage data or just data that nobody needs, then you're using up a lot of capital that could be used during times where data is really needed, like during blockchain network congestion, which is usually during times of market volatility which is when liquidations happen, which is when price updates are the most important. So most of this subsidy kind of happens during these moments. And if you're just wasting it all the time, you're not necessarily going to have enough capital during the points in time where you do need updates very desperately. So it's essentially, this is the way you can maximize the subsidy without wasting it on garbage data. And that's kind of how you allow for long-term sustainability. Yeah. And you also, you could have a lot of redundant data come on chain as well, which is not beneficial, whereas opposed to sharing, you know, costs for, you know, so everyone can get the high quality data for shared costs. So you're not paying full cost to get access to that. So, so we talked about the, the dynamic subsidy, which is very important. And the other, the other reward is the service fees. So every smart contract application that's using Chainlink has to pay link to access those Oracle services. So this, uh, this serves as a revenue stream as well. And this node revenue is tied directly to the network. 
So the health of Chainlink is key to the node's uh, business model and, and the revenue it's going to bring in. And so if you look, you can see you know, all the various sponsors on the data.chain.link page, where you'll see all the different, these are just for price feeds, but you'll see all the different price feeds that Chainlink's providing. You can scroll through the different networks that those are running on, and you can scroll through the sponsor of those. And, there's a lot of different sponsors, Aave, Synthetics, DYDX, you know, there's tons more. And so with, with these service fees too, which, which we kind of alluded to before is that you can create shared Oracle networks where users all use the same Oracle feed and they all collectively fund that Oracle feed. And so you essentially what you get is the high, you can get the highest quality data for the lowest cost. And each new user that comes in lowers the cost for all existing users. And so you create this kind of economies of scale, which also will basically create sustainability for that feed over time. For example, like the Ethereum USD feed or with ETH USD feed on Ethereum has 40 plus paying members that funds a 31 node network. Yeah, I think that that key point with, I feel like that's a huge value proposition of Chainlink is that, that economies of scale, because effectively what that means from like a user's perspective, is that you're getting the highest quality Oracle networks, the highest quality data and guarantees at the lowest cost. So if each user wanted to go launch their own Oracle network, they would have to pay all of the costs themselves and then get a lower quality network. But by aggregating the fees for these commonly required data sets, which with DeFi, that's very much price feeds, then you can actually aggregate a capital, which basically means you're increasing the security budget for each, each price feed, which effectively means you're actually increasing the security of the DeFi ecosystem as a whole. So if you had like a bunch of different Oracle projects and you were trying to fund all these different networks on different Oracle solutions, you're basically fractionalizing security across these different networks. And even if you try to combine the data, it's still, you know, combining garbage data, you're still gonna get garbage data. You want a one really high quality decentralized feed for each piece of data that everybody contributes their security and capital to because that's how you get the greatest amount of security at the lowest cost. And effectively, that ultimately results in one of like uh, one of many network effects that Chainlink has, where it's just either you want the highest quality at the lowest cost, or you just get, you know, you don't get that by another solution. You're, you're, you're essentially diluting quality when you, when, when the ecosystem, this is like for the ecosystem in general, if the ecosystem spreads out across many different Oracle solutions, they're each one of those is going to be diluted in its quality. And by mixing those, you're just mixing a, a bunch of subpar solutions. Whereas if you all commit resources to the same network, you can get the highest quality for the lowest cost. And this could even span across multiple chains. You know, while, while the price feeds may be different, if, the, if a node's running a few networks on a different chains, it could be using the same APIs. And so you're, you're sharing those costs, those costs cross network as well. And as we've pointed out to in a previous episode, you know, Chainlink is already decentralized. It has many different security measures in place to make sure even in the worst case scenario that are, that are kind of backstop solutions that will protect user funds. So. There's no, it's, it's like trying to back up Ethereum with another blockchain with Cardano or something. It, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense and you don't really get any added value from that. And what's great about this too is that smaller projects can get high quality data because the costs are, are lower because they're being shared. And, and, and it, 
it also creates this path to, to self-sustainability by, by supporting these projects early and then they become larger, then they can pay more user fees to those networks. And, and again, this creates this kind of economies of scale and this self-sustainability, which is what everyone wants. And then the subsidy decreases over time and to the point where you, 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 know, you don't need it anymore. Well, once, once these networks grow in adoption and the user fees increase and the users themselves increase in adoption and can pay more fees, you basically negate the need for the subsidies for those networks. So it's not only self-sustainable, but that, uh, that subsidy capital can actually be reallocated to go launch new Oracle networks and basically restarting the entire cycle all over again. So it's, this is like the long-term economic part of the crypto economic security of the Chainlink network is using the subsidy to bootstrap these Oracle networks to get users and you get the highest quality at the lowest cost, which attracts more users, which increases the security and lowers the cost even further. And it keeps that cycle going until you have a network that has so much capital that it, it, it provides such a large amount of income for nodes and yet such a low per, per user costs that realistically no other network could compete. So kind of going back to like the aggregating multiple low quality networks that just cannot compete on the same level because you're not going to get the same security guarantees at all. So this single aggregation of capital into decentralized networks, like a decentralized ETHUSD feed, then that's the most practical solution for any user, regardless of how they're using the feed. Right, and this is really to the benefit of the entire ecosystem. Like I know people are like, oh, well that's what Chainlink wants or so they might say something like that, but actually this is, this is beneficial for everyone. And this will actually allow more Oracle networks to be launched in production. And I think the, the last point just we wanted to briefly touch on was there can be a lot of abstraction layers. So like for that allow people to pay in whatever you know, cryptocurrency they want, but still the link token get paid to the node operators in the background. And so like, there's a lot, like you could think of these as meta transactions where a user may want to pay in Ethereum that gets maybe swapped on a DEX in the background and then go, then the link gets sent to the node operator. So there's a lot of ways where, you know, you can abstract these, uh, payment methods and so users can use the tokens they want. I think this is, in general, this is something that the space will move towards as a whole. I think the key point, like so, some people ask like, well, why can't I just pay the oracles in any token? And the, the reason you wanna maintain link is like the de facto dominant form of payment is because that's what gives the subsidy value effectively. If you had a valueless token that wasn't used for anything, it, the, the subsidy is not gonna be worth anything so you can't bootstrap any networks. But by forcing the use of link in these networks, it, it basically provides value to that subsidy and utility, but you could still, like CO said, you can abstract away all that complexity where it just goes and swaps it in the background. Yeah, I'm really actually really glad you brought that point up because people are like, you know, I saw someone the other day, they made a, a post about like, what if you paid the blockchain, what if you paid the Ethereum miner or Ethereum validators in, in a different, you know, cryptocurrency? And you know you would destroy, you would destroy the block reward. The block reward over time would have less and less value. And so, like the the payment, the, the payment of the network and the staking of the network and the network's native token is key to actually making the subsidy. It basically creates a, a, a va creates value for the subsidy, and so it and that creates more security for the network. So, 
again, I think you'll have abstraction layers where you can pay in it, but you need those native tokens to be used in the background because that's actually what gives them value. And what, what gives them value is what gives them security. Yeah, like when you're when you're trying to drive value to a token, like sure that's gonna be beneficial for token holders who take on that initial risk. But the real reason you're trying to drive value is because the value gives value inherently to the subsidy and the subsidy is what secures the network. So you want to actually enshrine this native token as the de facto dominant form of payment, of staking, and of uh, pretty much any form of uh, security in the network because the security of the network as a whole is going to depend on the value of that token. So it's it's not just something that's for speculation, but the value of the token directly de uh, determines the security of the network. So that that's why you have to use a native token. And even on like say networks like Aave, which they are using the Aave token as an insurance pool, it actually creates more security too because that token is tied directly to that network. And so there's like more incentives to see that network do well, because if it doesn't, then, then you know, the, those token holders are affected. And so this, this direct tie, tying directly the native token to the network security creates more security. Yeah, I think that that's, it, it, that's a significant uh, point in how these networks are secure. And I think that kind of kind of steps into this, this next area. So what we kind of covered here was the reward. So the subsidy and the user fees, which basically provide us uh, funding for security of network security. But there's that, that's kind of like the demand side of things. But if you look at the supply side of things in terms of the resource input from node operators and the penalties of node operators, this in of itself can effectively, in terms of crypto, crypto economic security, can be broken down into explicit and implicit incentives or really explicit and implicit staking in this sense. So with the new, the version two white paper in Chainlink 2.0, uh, Chainlink nodes effectively, as we've kind of known was gonna be the model for a while, have to stake and lock up their link tokens as collateral to basically provide insurance on their Oracle services, to provide a, a definitive skin in the game that can be slashed for any kind of predefined bad performance. So that could be downtime, that could be outlier data, corrupted data, basically anything defined in a service agreement that a node shouldn't uh, do uh, can result in their capital, their link tokens getting slashed. And kind of like the point made before, the reason why the collateral is link and not another token is because the value of the link token is derived from the health of the network and drives value to the subsidy. And the subsidy, which is paid to nodes, uh, drives a, a creates a large amount of security for the network as a whole. So that, 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 that's like, that's going to be the future direction of crypto economic security in the Chainlink network. So it's not live today, but in the Chainlink 2.0 model, that's how a large amount of crypto economic security is generated. So more specifically, this model is, it's broken down effectively into two tier Oracle networks. So there's a first tier kind of like we have today, where it's a network of independent Oracle nodes continuously generating Oracle reports. Maybe it's ETHUSD, or maybe it's the weather in Argentina. And then there is a second tier kind of backstop tier, which is used only for dispute resolution in the rare case where disputes are raised and they need to be settled by entities who have a large amount of skin in the game and seeing those uh, disputes being resolved correctly. So with this first tier, uh, each node in this first tier network would be responsible for locking up a specific amount of link tokens. And locking up those tokens basically gives them the right to participate in the network contribute their data into an aggregated Oracle report, which eventually uh, gets sent to the users effectively. And so this capital, these link tokens are staked in the service agreement and that could be slashed if they're malicious. So 
during during most cases, this happens without issue. The data is correct and the consumer consumes the data, but there is a possibility where the majority of Oracle nodes may include, or they may be dishonest for whatever reason and try and deliver a manipulated data point to users. So to kind of prevent this, any node in this first tier network can act as a watchdog and they can raise an alert if they think the majority of the nodes in that network are being dishonest. And when they raise an alert, that effectively goes to the second tier and gets voted upon, which I'll kind of dive into in a second. But uh, kind of a key point is that any node in this first tier network can raise an alert and even multiple nodes can, but there is a specific order that these alerts are processed in. So effectively at the start of each round, when a new Oracle report is created, each node gets a random priority number. So if there's like 10 nodes, each node gets a unique number one to 10, and that determines the order the alerts are processed. And that's important because if a watchdog is correct in its report, meaning the second tier believes that the original report was manipulated and that the, the, the alert raised was correct, then all of the slashed stake from all the malicious nodes all gets concentrated to the highest priority watchdog effectively. And I'll kind of step into this in a second, but that significantly raises the cost of the attack of the network by concentrating how much uh, tokens uh, an honest, a single honest node is capable of earning. And so kind of a, 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 a different side of things if the watchdog report is wrong and it's alert, then effectively whoever raised that false alert gets slashed. So that kind of just prevents DOS attacks and that'd be determined by the, the second tier. So effectively what this model, what it means is that every node is incentivized to raise an alert if the majority is malicious, even if they themselves are malicious because they have an opportunity to potentially win this concentrated reward, even if they're not the highest priority because maybe the higher priority nodes were bribed to not raise an alert or they were offline or whatever reason really. So. Uh, every node has the ability to win this concentrated reward, meaning if you wanted to corrupt the network, you would have to basically bribe each node by that concentrated reward amount, each node, because only a single node has to raise an alert for, the, the, for it to be discovered that the aggregated report was incorrect. So kind of breaking this down a little bit further, it kind of gets into the, the, the super linear staking impact that this concentrated reward generates. And so I think this is kind of a simple way to put it. It's more math driven, but I think it's when you go step by step, it's pretty simple. If you have like a network with N nodes and each node stakes D tokens, so maybe 10 nodes staking 10 link each for a total of 100 link. So the total would be D times N. If you imagine that the majority is malicious when they create a report, that's DN divided by two. And so that's the concentrated reward amount. And so every node in the network has the capability, the opportunity to win this DN divided by two amount meaning each node needs to be bribed by this amount, exactly. So the total budget is that times the number of nodes, meaning the total budget that an adversary would require to corrupt a network would be dn squared divided by two, which is quadratic in the number of nodes. So it basically, as the number of nodes increases, the cost of attack just absolutely skyrockets. So if we want to kind of provide an example, quantify it a little bit more, you could imagine that there was a network with hundred chain link nodes where each Chainlink node is staking $1 million in link each, meaning the total budget of that network would effectively be $100 million. But because of this super linear staking design where each node needs to be bribed by the concentrated reward amount, which is effectively half the stake on the network, that means each node needs to be staked, uh, needs to be bribed $50 million each. 
And so 50 million times 100 nodes ends up being about $5 billion, which is about 50 times higher than the actual stake being deposited in that network. And so as you increase the number of nodes in a network, the actual total adversarial budget you would require grows even faster, actually. That's kind of what gives it a quadratic factor. So, you know, when there's networks with thousands of nodes and eventually tens of thousands of nodes, these chain like networks are going to be protected against trillions of dollars uh, in, in capital because each node needs to be bribed by at least half of the stake in the network because that only happens when the majority of nodes are malicious. So that's, that's kind of what creates this super linear staking design that ultimately only exists if, uh, if you have this concentrated reward effectively. So if we look at this in a, in a practical perspective from a node, if a node is bribed under $50 million, it could make more money by raising the alert. Because remember, you need to corrupt half of the nodes on the network. So that means half of them are wrong for an alert to be correct. Half of them need to be wrong. If 50 nodes or more are staking 1 million each, then the, the, accent, the, the minimum they can make is $50 million. So the only way to actually successfully bribe enough nodes is, is, is for that to be over $50 million. So you get, a, you get a very large security budget for a lot less stake. And so this is going to be, this is how, you know, because I know people wanted each you know, to stake the full contract amount, but the reality is that that isn't capital efficient. There's too much opportunity cost to put that much capital at stake for, you know, not for not enough reward that you're going to get, or else you'd have to pay the nodes so much and no one is going to pay the you know nodes that much for each Oracle report, especially considering the volume of Oracle reports that they could be producing. So this, this is, you know, in my opinion, is actually a really great model that you can get this much security at a cost efficient rate. Because you'll actually, what you'll do is you'll create more Oracle reports that have more crypto economic security estate. So it'll probably even itself out in that regard. Yeah, and I think another key point here is that uh, only one node actually has to be honest. So with these 100 nodes, if 99 of them were bribed uh, with over $50 million each, but there was just one node who uh, took a rose the rose an alert instead to the second tier, then they're still all going to get their capital uh, slashed because there was at least one alert that was raised. If you think about it, it actually creates more incentive the more that are dishonest. So if you had just one node, they would get 99 of the other nodes and they actually would get a larger reward. So it kind of scales in that regard, the incentives. Yeah, that's a good point. That, that's something I've thought about before. That I don't think it's like been modeled, but like you need at least the majority to be dishonest for an alert to be valid to pay out. But like the, the greater you go past the majority and you start hitting like a super majority and beyond that, like 99%, that, uh, that concentrated reward amount is going to be greater than this super linear DN squared divided by two. It's actually going to be just DN uh, squared, which is even greater, it's twice as much. So instead of a $5 billion total budget, you would, it would be a $10 billion total budget, meaning each node wouldn't have to be bribed $50 million. They would have to be bribed $100 million each, just about. So like as, as more nodes are dishonest, the concentrated reward amount for raising an honest alert actually grows at the same time. So it's, it's more than likely that somebody is going to raise an alert over time. Yeah, I mean, these kind of financial incentives, which are very lucrative, is pretty much, in my opinion, is, you know, they're going to prevent 
almost any time ever needing the second tier Oracle network because there's such strong incentives in the first tier. So this, this creates a lot of efficiency as well, is that you're not constantly getting flagged into the second tier because there's, there's you know, such incentives in the, in the first tier. Yeah, and I think a key point is some other Oracle networks, they have a design where anybody can raise an alert, but that has the trade-off of not only being kind of a denial of service attack, people can just spam disputes and make, make the system run slower, but it also results in less security because there's less of an incentive for the nodes themselves, to be honest, because they have less an incentive to actually raise an alert because someone else will probably get it. So when it's actually the first tier themselves who are responsible for raising an alert, they have a greater amount of incentive to be honest so that they have an opportunity to actually win this concentrated reward amount. So that's kind of where that, uh, that security is generated from. Yeah, you, you get kind of a like tragedy of the commons where most people aren't checking Oracle reports because they're, you know, first off, they're so rare. So, that, so you're doing all this computation with like such a low chance that you actually, uh, you know, it'll pay off. You might even eat a loss over time. So it's probably going to be a lot of the same people anyways at the end of the day. And so by having, by, by the or by the Oracle nodes doing it, yeah, they have more of a direct incentive and they know it's, you know, they can quantify it to a certain extent of what kind of chance they get. You could even maybe create system. I don't, you know, this is just me, you know, hypothetically could even create systems perhaps that require nodes to check. And so there's like kind of like similar, like the ETH staking where they're, they're kind of required to validate the work of others. So I think they have, I think they have to actually report like a one or zero, like a yes or no, if they're going to raise an alert in the staking system. So they kind of have to check in that regard. And I think another point is like each node, if you're going to be in, or like a rationally actor, rational, honest actor, and you don't raise an alert, even when you're honest and it ends up being the majority is dishonest, no alert is raised, even though you were honest, you would be slashed. So there's a strong incentive for you personally to raise an alert, even when everybody else is malicious because you don't want to get slashed yourself. And the last point out is when you think of it in a reputational model, nodes that flag reports that again, get that they're proven right in their flag are probably going to increase the reputation of that node because they've been shown that they'll flag dishonest reports. And so, if I'm a user, I'm like, well, I probably want someone like that in my Oracle network because this person has shown that they are actually checking the validity of reports. So I think this would actually increase a node's reputation over time. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is effectively like the core design of super linear staking is this first tier incentive of raising alerts and having concentrated rewards to generate this large amount of security that's super linear compared to the actual total aggregate amount of uh, deposits from nodes. But ultimately what it comes down to is how does the second tier uh, actually arbitrate the results of any alerts raised? Because ultimately that's kind of what it, what it comes down to. And granted the second tier would uh, very rarely be called if ever, because these strong uh, credible, credible threat of arbitration is strong enough to not be malicious and not have a malicious majority. But Realistically, you want to prepare for the worst and you want to actually create this uh, strong, credible threat of arbitration. So this, uh, the, the, the second tier of these Oracle networks effectively just performs the arbitration. So there's kind of, there's different ways to compose the second tier network. So there's kind of what was laid out in the white paper where it's the most reputable, the highest income generating the most public and the most reputable chain link nodes in the entire network is this second tier network where they're 
extremely financially exposed to the link token. And if they falsely arbitrate a dispute, then they, they can affect the value of the link token adversely because they have so much skin in the game is the most uh, reputable and the highest earning nodes. And another model that was kind of presented by Sergey at the Coindesk 2021 conference was that this second tier can actually and probably be better if the second tier was consistent consisted of all of the users, the Chainlink users, so like the Aave and the Synthetics and the DYDX, those protocols, they would be the ones to actually arbitrate uh, these these disputes. And effectively, what that would look like is the when a dispute happens, the the all these users would effectively be voting on what the data point should have been at that time. And these users, it can be the project development team behind these DApps who have a strong incentive to keep the, the DApp running, or it could be the, the DAOs, the decentralized autonomous organizations like a, a lot of DeFi applications have now where they vote with their own governance token. And so that that's kind of two areas where the users have a lot of flexibility, but also a lot of skin in the game. And I think what, what you could see as well is, is a combination of the best Chainlink nodes and nodes particularly that are not in the Oracle network affected as well as the users. So you have the Chainlink nodes that have a clear financial incentive to see the health of the network, uh, you know, to see the good health of the network so they can continue earning revenue. And then the users, particularly the ones directly affected by the Oracle report because their users are essentially screwed over if the uh, Oracle report is is wrong, if, if they if they accept a, a bad Oracle report, yeah, I think that's kind of the key point. Is like, who do you want in your second tier to resolve the disputes? It would clearly be the people who have the most skin in the game and the most to lose. And so, if if as a user you can be in the second tier, that's the best possible model of you as a user and all of these other users, Ave Synthetics, where the security, the reliability, and the reputation of their own application inherently depends upon correct data being delivered to their protocol. So the only reason that incorrect data would be delivered is if all of these protocols, these users colluded to effectively, like you said, screw over their own users, which realistically they have a strong incentive not to do that because of their revenue and because they don't want to devalue their own governance token. And if you think about it, well, how are their users affected? Well, if Ave consumed a bad Oracle report, you could have a lot of false liquidations of user funds. And so if in the second tier, if they then vote to say, oh no, this Oracle report was correct, where they're essentially screwing their users over and causing their users to then faulty liquidations. And so any protocol that wants to see itself succeed is going to vote in an honest manner. And you could, you know, you could combine that with Chainlink nodes as well, or you could just use the users. I think it's really something to see what what the what ecosystem demand is there for you know who makes up the Oracle network, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's a key point is like you as a, as a D app where you have so much long term potential of generating revenue as like a core DeFi protocol that eventually will become part of like the global economy and the value of this governance token, that's a lot of skin in the game. And so there's no reason you would screw over your users unless the reward was just absolutely massive and even greater than the total total value locked of the entire DeFi ecosystem. And not just that, but you're not the only you're not the only person voting and these votes are public. So if you vote to screw your own users, but then the, the majority of the other participants in the second tier are honest, well then there's a lot of, you just try to screw your own users over, weren't successful, 
And so that even is going to be even worse for you. And so like, I, I think it's going to be quite hard to corrupt, you know, if, if you have a, a large, mature, you know, many large protocols using this or even small ones and, and even, you know, mature, uh, the best chain like nodes, uh, it's going to be very hard to corrupt these second tiers. Yeah, especially since like all the votes are going to be recorded on a public immutable ledger. Anybody at any point in time can go back and look, hey, this protocol just voted against its users. They were trying to screw their users over. They failed because everyone else successfully uh, voted correctly. So like you would just be torturing your own applications, reputation and revenue for absolutely nothing because the, the collective crypto economic security, it, the crypto economic incentives are so strong. And I think a key dynamic of this, which is pretty powerful, is that the crypto economic security in this, in this uh, two-tier Oracle network model is not only the financial value of the link token itself, because any incorrect, any malicious activity would devalue the token that first tier node stake and the, the really the security of the network, which applications depend upon. But these users, they would be voting uh, either with their governance token or they would have a governance token attached to their protocol, like Aave and Aave, Synthetics and SNX, uh, Urine and Wi-Fi, Sushi and Sushi. Like th these users have tokens and if they're malicious and they vote against themselves and their own users, the value of those tokens are gonna collapse. So effectively the crypto economic security of these networks with the users as the second tier would be the aggregate market cap of both the Chainlink token and all of the tokens of all the governance tokens of these users in the second tier. So that effectively allows the Chainlink network to scale its crypto economic security beyond its market cap, which the market cap itself still needs to grow to provide that first tier staking where nodes have to lock up link and only link, but it can effectively piggyback off the crypto economic security and the market cap value of these user tokens, which effectively would mean the cost of attack would just be exponentially higher than what an attacker could ever possibly gain from attacking a protocol and trying to get the total value locked. Yeah, it's also a lot more capital efficient if all these were, sta were staking these explicitly, it's, I don't think it really gets you much more security because then you need another kind of layer of arbitration. It's an infinite layer of arbitration. And also like, who wants to lock up, you know, all that capital for such long periods of, uh, you know, unknown periods of time, who knows when the arbitration is gonna come about. It doesn't actually make a lot of economic sense and really doesn't, get you any extra security when you consider all the users and all the nodes, you know, you'd have to basically get all the nodes to forego all future revenue and get all the users to screw over or all the protocols to screw over their own users. That's a massive barrier to, to overcome. Yeah. And I think another point here, like you hit on, if you just had the second tier staking, you would need a third tier to determine when to slash. And if that third tier was staking, you would have to have a fourth tier to determine how to slash it becomes a recursive problem. And so that's solved, quote unquote, by having each tier stake more and more tokens. But you know that kind of results in an auger model where disputes can take weeks to months to resolve. And at that point is way too late. You know That data needs to be readily available to liquidate positions or convert a synthetic asset. Like you can't wait weeks and months for a dispute to be processed. So when you have not only the users who, have, who are very incentivized to not only get correct Oracle data, but uh, rapid Oracle data for their own protocol to ensure their own solvency. But these users, they're not just voting blindly on the data. What they're actually voting on is a cryptographic deco proof, which is a, a zero knowledge proof, which definitively proves 
data came from a specific data source, one or multiple of them. And so the users, it's pretty simple what they're doing. They're just looking at a cryptographic proof and then they're voting yes and no on that uh, cryptographic proof. So there's not much interaction that needs to be done. And in fact, because of Deco is backwards compatible with existing systems, that means the users don't actually need API subscriptions. They don't need to, uh, they don't need to have a direct connection to the data source. Just one chain link node or one user or one entity needs access and they can give this Deco proof to other people because they can't manipulate it because of cryptography. So it effectively allows the second tier to perform arbitration on literally any type of data available without needing to expend all this capital cost for API subscriptions or you know, blindly guessing because you didn't have the connection. So it's, it's a lot more secure in that regard. Yeah, and just to point out the Deco proof is, is zero knowledge proof. So they can prove some data in some backend API system was what it says it is uh, without necessarily revealing that data on chain. And then everyone can verify the validity of that proof to prove it. And, and so I think a lot of, a lot of this Deco proof will make it a lot more efficient in arbitration and also will vastly expand what you can prove where in like a model like Augur and, and nothing against Augur, I think they did a good job of, of setting that first kind of like, like putting, putting out the idea of the first type of crypto economic security. You know? But you, you kind of are forced to a certain degree of free data or you need like some API subscription model. And so it's, it's much more complex, especially when it's very rare that you actually will have a, a dispute. Now, I, I will point out though that there may be times though where if the data source is wrong, you may have to, there may be additional arbitration after the, you know, the proof, okay, it did say this, but you know, it, it appears to be wrong. And so there can be a di additional arbitration after that to, to rectify mistakes like that. Yeah, I think a key point is like this second tier can really be composed however you need it. So if this is like a very specialized data set and time delays don't really matter. You can even have like human arbitragers or arbitration in the second tier where it goes through like manual auditing and that can take a week, you know, if, if that's how you want to design your second tier. But ultimately, you know, you, you can design the second tier to consist of any of these entities who have a large amount of skin in the game in order to de determine how these, uh, the, these votes are actually processed. Well, one thing to note too is that, and I don't think that this model would be used, but you, you could even do a token weighted model if you really wanted to in the second tier. Like it, it's customizable. Uh, so if you have a particular Oracle network and you want to do a token weighted voting, you, you could do that. There's nothing that's particularly uh, stopping you. I think, you know, Chainlink model is meant to, this Deco model and with users is meant to be without, you know, staking tokens is meant to be a much more efficient and better model. But again, you could use this other model should you desire this model. So this, this explicit staking model is effectively the direct reward and penalty system of these uh, Chainlink 2.0 uh, staking networks. But in addition to all of these rewards and penalties that drive these crypto economics, there's actually like an additional layer uh, wrapping the entire network in terms of implicit incentives or implicit staking as you can so put it. And so this is kind of, it, 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 you could think of it as very similar to what we see in Bitcoin and Ethereum in the sense that Network participants, Chainlink nodes, are holding and they get paid in a native token link whose value is derived from the health of the network. So effectively, if the 
network becomes corrupted and people lose faith in the network, then there becomes little reason to hold the token and the market valuation of the token would collapse because of that. So that provides a very strong uh, implicit uh, incentive to effectively provide honest services because you don't want to devalue the token that you're extremely financially exposed to. So effectively, nodes can have different uh, levels, different various ways of being exposed to the token uh, beyond just getting paid in tokens and holding tokens passively. What we kind of see is link tokens being used as collateral in DeFi, maybe in something like Aave, where they can put it as collateral, borrow stable coins against it or ETH, and basically pay for their capital costs or any of their expenses without having to lose exposure to the, to the link token. A lot of the time, these Oracle networks are prepaid in the sense that the aggregation contract holds link tokens that will be paid out. And those node operators want to uphold the value of those tokens because that's effectively, they know that that will be their revenue. And it's, it's guaranteed that that will be the revenue and they want to guarantee the value of those tokens. And there's other, uh, there's other dynamics where you could kind of have node operators prove their exposure to link over the long term by having kind of time-locked contracts where a node operator can say, I'm going to prove my, my connection to the Chainlink network, my, my, uh, my guarantee I'm going to be honest by locking up a million dollars of link in a time-locked contract that will unlock in a year. And so effectively, that means that they're financially exposed to link and they have no option to withdraw until that year passes. And so that's, that's a dynamic where node operators compete with one another with tokens that they're not already explicitly staking. And so they can effectively show that to users on different marketplaces to show that they're, you know, if anything were to go wrong in the Chainlink network, they would be financially harmed because of that. And so another, another aspect is that a lot of times these node operators are actually like Chainlink community members. They are in the, they, they want to see the Chainlink ecosystem grow not necessarily just because of the financial rewards, which is a major part of it, but also through like a form of altruism where a lot of people run Bitcoin nodes, not because they're a miner and getting paid, but because they want to help secure the network and they want to help uh, keep the network healthy. And so that's also another dynamic where these community members run Chainlink nodes and they're honest because they want to see the network continue its growth. And just to touch on the Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, comparison, you know, obviously the, the initial one is that they're getting paid in a token that's the, the revenue is directly denominated in a token that's specifically tied to the health of that network. But also I think with the one interesting aspect with Link, when you take into an explicit account, it's kind of like mining, but you actually have to hold the token. And the more you hold the Link token, the more mining you can do because of that token is backing your crypto economics, you know, backing your Oracle services. You can only provide more of that crypto economic security by providing, by having more of that token. But in terms of the implicit incentives, the one I don't think is always discussed is this kind of uh, proving exposure to the link token, particularly by locking it in a time lock contract. It would, maybe there's some, uh, some parameters where you can unlock it if certain conditions are met. But, but th this is kind of like holding mining equipment in a lot of ways, is that you hold this token, you cannot just directly, you know, reduce your exposure to this token unless certain conditions are met. And so it, you, it really creates a clear financial incentive for you to uphold that token over a, over a long period of time. So I think it's an important dynamic. And so it's not necessarily subject to slashing, but again, it still gives you a lot of exposure only to that network. 
Yeah, I think the point you make where like Link is like mining hardware, I think that's a good analogy because you can think of Link as future Link effectively, where you can think of ASICs as future Bitcoin. It's the same thing with Link. If, even if you're holding it passively, you have the knowledge that you can later go stake it and go earn yield natively on a protocol level on your Link token. So when you're trying to value the opportunity costs, it's not just the value of the Link token itself, but it's also the future revenue each Link token is able to generate for you effectively. So you don't want to devalue the cash flows or the value of those tokens. So like one of the like attack vectors that people sometimes propose is couldn't you just short the token and then attack the network? But that's like an attack vector that's been proposed time and time again for networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Why don't Bitcoin miners just short Bitcoin and go attack the network? But the, the, the reality is that there's a number of stopping points that kind of prevents that is not only would you need liquidity on a non-KYC exchange and a non-chain-linked application, which is, you know, that's a rare breed that doesn't really exist. And even if you could find that, they could easily censor you and take your capital away, making it entirely impractical. And it's, you know, first of all, not capital efficient, but also an extreme amount of social coordination because you as a singular entity can't attack the network as a whole. You need to coordinate and collude with all these other entities who have the same exact explicit and implicit incentives in staking that you do. And so even if you were able to get the capital somehow, and even if you were able to get the social coordination somehow, it still wouldn't be worth it because you would be completely voiding all the future revenue in the network and all of the future upside of the link token. Because realistically, a token can only drop 100%, but it can rise theoretically to infinity, meaning if you look at it from a risk reward ratio, it's way easier and it's much more profitable to be honest and continue serving the network to continue to generate continuous revenue and profits. So realistically, that's not something we're ever going to see. I think this really gets magnified too when you, when you consider uh, explicit staking and the amount of rewards that a node could get from uh, you know, being a watchdog. So it becomes exponentially harder to uh, bribe enough nodes to actually pull off an attack like this. Yeah, it's one of those things where like anything's theoretical if you have enough capital. Like even the Bitcoin network can't be protected against an adversary with a couple trillion dollars willing to burn. It's just that that cost of attack is so high it makes it completely impractical because the reward out of attacking would just pale in comparison, making it completely unrealistic. And if you were, if you were say you were really concerned about this attack, I believe it's called a goldfinger attack. Um, you you could implement something like a circuit, like a chain link circuit breaker, and you could prevent you you could cause a pause in certain activity on the network. So there are actually ways as well where you can use chain link to uh, forego these types of issues if you're really concerned. This is like, like you said, this is like a theoretical example that people have proposed for a while, but it never actually pans out in, in the real world because it requires so much capital to pull off and it's very risky and there's a lot of complexities. So, but if you were somewhat, if you were concerned, you know, there are ways to mitigate it. Yeah, it's one of those things that's just not realistic because when you add up all the implicit incentives, all the explicit incentives, plus the social coordination, plus the liquidity, it's one of those things where it's just going to be more profitable to be honest. And that's how these, that's why these networks have an honest majority assumption is because of the crypto economic security. And the last thing I was going to bring up is that in Chainlink specifically, this is maybe a little bit easier to do in a, in a, in a proof of work system, but in Chainlink, if you have a lot of known node operators, it, it, it's not like you, you're just like hide away. 
like all, all the, the security review nodes right now, they're known entities. You could go figure out who these people are fairly easily. Um, and, you know, there's could be legal ramifications, or, you know, not to mention uh, social ramifications from people screwed over from all that money. And so this is, uh, you can, I, I don't think people often look at, you can't, it's not like a DeFi hack where you just disappear into the ether and no one knows who you are. Um, you, if, if you use the anonymous nodes, but again, then you're, those are the trust assumptions that you are going with in the service agreement if you want to use anonymous nodes. Like you could do that in the Chainlink network today, but again, you have to be comfortable with those trust assumptions. Ultimately, you can compose these networks however you need to, but when they're all public entities, it's just, it's a whole nother layer of a screwing over stakeholders and screwing over your reputation and basically screwing over your life if you get thrown in prison because of it. I mean, you really want the Link Marines without with their pitchforks? <laughs> I don't think that's like, you can see what they do on Twitter. Imagine uh, trying to pull off attack like that. I don't think that's going to be very uh, wise. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of frogs launched at you. That's not a that's not a situation any node operator wants to be under. So under uh, kind of a, as a parallel to all this, it's kind of similar to how miners have capital costs of like electricity and, uh, and hardware. Uh, running a chain link node, it's, it doesn't cost a lot, but there are costs and there are investments that have to be made where if you're an Oracle node, you need to have API subscriptions to high quality data sources that you're actually selling access to. You need to run blockchain full nodes or have a connection to a full node. If you're running on multiple blockchains, you need to have multiple full nodes and those connections uh, come with costs. You need some kind of uh, infrastructure, whether that's a bare metal server or that's in cloud and Oftentimes, depending on the service agreement, there could even be trusted hardware or more specialized infrastructure. Maybe you're a Chainlink node who specifically does high throughput computation. You need the hardware to support that. Or maybe you're a Chainlink node who's just running IoT uh, data and you need to run it on a Raspberry Pi. You know, there's different, uh, different parameters that you need to consider that you need to invest in when you're running a Chainlink node and kind of a different, more reputational public based. If you're a node operator, you know, the chain like economy, it's like a free market economy where you need to market yourself. You need to have some kind of business development operation to convince people, other users to include your node into their network. And so effectively being a node operator and the, at the end of the day is like being a business. You could be pseudo anonymous, but a business is a business and businesses have costs and you pay back those costs and oftentimes debt, you know, what the revenue you generate in the network. So that's like, that's an even another incentive that you have, you know, not just your family, but all your employees are depending upon you and all this equipment you purchased, which you could resell, but you know, you can't really resell an API connection. So there, there's going to be costs you can't recoup uh, that you would have to invest. And so kind of a, a parallel to all of this, which is kind of along the same lines is uh, the, the reputation of individual chain link nodes. Yeah, so, so far we've discussed the rewards, we've discussed the penalties, we just discussed kind of the finance, some of the finance, some of the more financial incentives, which I guess are really rewards and penalties at the end of the day. Uh, another aspect of, of chain, like specifically chain link, or I guess you could say a lot of proof of stake networks to some degree, is uh, reputation. And and I think reputation in, in the chain link is is important because again, not all nodes are used in all networks. They don't perform standardized functions. They can vary in the quality of the service that they provide, which could be, you know, 
how 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 much uptime they have or it could go what data they have access to because at the end of the day you're going to pick the nodes that you want to compose into a committee to provide you oracle services and so what are you going to do you're going to use this reputation system to pick the best nodes more than likely uh, maybe you choose a randomized model but my guess is even if you chose a random model you would you would have a certain uh, reputational setting, like only nodes above a certain rating or something like that, or with a certain uptime. And so how this works is in, in Chainlink, each node's uh, you know, historical performance is tracked on chain as, a, as essentially immutable records. So you can see their performance directly on chain and you can track that over time to generate some type of reputational score. And these can be, you know, defined how, you know, what, what you consider um, valuable in a reputation really depends on the users, whether it's uptime, whether it's how much link they have at stake, how long they've been running, the actual entity, maybe their geographic location for GDPR requirements, you know, they can really vary in a lot of ways. And then by looking at the reputation, you can really gauge, you know, the quality of the node. And so the nodes have a clear financial incentive to continually perform and to build their reputation because the reputation is likely what's going to continue to earn them revenue not only on their current jobs you know continue earning revenue but also to grow their business model and earn future jobs and the important point is that poor performance you can't delete it it's an immutable record on the blockchain and then to to bootstrap a new reputation is not easy yes you you could you could bootstrap a new reputation by by providing a lot of link capital, but but if you you know if nodes want to know who if 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 smart contracts want to know who you are, you can't just bootstrap a new identity. I mean, you could try, I guess, and spin off a, a some other business model, but you know, it, it would be a lot. It would be difficult. You'd, you'd have to start from zero. You have to maybe create new identities or or you know start up a whole new business and and. and you know, it could be very difficult in comparison to nodes that have been running on the network for a long time, have a very established reputation. Like, I'm going to probably trust those nodes over, you know, your particular uh, node. It, it, you know, depending on the value, maybe you, you know, if, if, especially if you're securing a lot of value. Yeah, I think it, I think it like ultimately it comes down to like what the users care about. What, what do they want composed in their network? Like what reputation metrics do they care about? If they just care about ultra reliability and ultra decentralization, they could just choose a ton of nodes and that would be their security model. Maybe they're a corporate entity who can only have nodes in, in mainland Europe and they have to be running trust execution environments and be using Deco. That could be the, that could be the basis of your selection of Chainlink nodes. You could even theoretically have a more permissionless model where as long as a node is staking X, y, uh, X amount of link, maybe it's 10,000, then they can participate and join your Oracle network. So. It's kind of like, it, it, there's no specific reputation metric you have to have to join the Chainlink network. It's just that you need to bootstrap a reputation, even if it's like a pseudo anonymous reputation to convince people to use your node based upon their notion of what who they trust and how they trust them. So it's like, it's like a web of trust model. If you see a node being trusted by a lot of people, it's probably gonna be a more trustworthy node than a new node that popped out of nowhere, offers no stake and says, trust me guys, I, I won't be malicious. So it's, it's kind of seeing what other people trust and seeing why they trust them. 
Yeah, it gives users of Oracle networks the ability to make educated decisions on how they want to compose their network. Like you said, it could be a very pernicious model. Maybe I want thousand nodes and they have to be a, staking a certain amount. And I think that that's going to give me enough security where I can operate on this type of model. Whereas other people, maybe I want less nodes, but I want them of a certain quality. I want to know who they are. And then this is the model that I'm comfortable with. Or maybe financially, it makes more sense for me. You know, this can be not just from what I you know, want from a security sense, but what I, what I can pay for as well. That's going to factor into it. And, and this, this reputation is not just important for the Chainlink network, but this is, I should more say, that the crypto economics incentive to build reputation can also have cross-network effects. So your poor performance on Chainlink can harm your reputation and your future revenue on other networks that you operate on. And I think this is particularly relevant when you're operating a POS validator, because people usually, you know, users delegate to your POS node, and that provides you the capital to, you know, potentially earn more revenue on that network. And when all these POS nodes are providing relatively similar APYs, why is anyone going to stake to your POS validator when you've been shown clearly to be malicious on this other network? Uh, because there's, the margins are going to be very small between you and your competitor. So you, you stand to lose a lot of uh, revenue on these other networks if you're malicious in the Chainlink network or your reputation falters. I think, I think, I think that's important because consideration of your poor performance in the Chainlink network affects other networks. And I think you could even see that within the Chainlink network itself because Chainlink is a network of networks. If you're malicious in one specific Chainlink Oracle network for one type of data, but you're in many different networks, people aren't going to trust your node anymore. So you're not only going to get slashed and booted from the network you were malicious in, but you're probably going to get booted from all the other Chainlink networks you're in as well because you just harmed your reputation. And then all of that as an aggregate of you being uh, uh, just a shitty node operator in the Chainlink network, that's going to reflect badly on your business. And so if you are a proof of stake validator, like you're running E2 nodes or Cosmos nodes or uh, uh, Polkadot or you know whatever the blockchain, you know those companies generate revenue based on their reputation. And if they destroy that, no matter how they do that in the Chainlink network, outside of the Chainlink network, that affects their revenue as a business as a whole, effectively. Yeah, and, and the other dynamic too is that there are many nodes on the Chainlink network that are Chainlink specific businesses, link pools, secure data links, Fuse, others. So their whole business model revolves around Chainlink. So this, this creates like another layer of incentive when your whole business is specifically about the health of Chainlink. And then you have like other people like data provider run nodes. We have several data providers, especially, you know, if you're, if you're providing bad data, you know, from your node, you know, why would anyone want to use your data and their smart contracts? And this could affect, this could spill over into traditional companies using your data as well. You also have like infrastructure providers and large telcos or enterprises that are running nodes. And again, this could have some effects on their business, you know, especially as it scales in value. So the more value, you know, if they produce faulty Oracle reports that are worth a lot of money, you know, this could have larger effects. I think, I think like a prominent example is this, we already see like uh, Deutsche Telekom's subsidiary T-Systems, they run a Chainlink node and Deutsche Telekom is like one of the largest telecommunication giants in Europe. And so they would have very little incentive to torch their network and their billions of dollars in revenue 
by attacking a chain link network. Like, re like realistically, just legally and businessly, is, that's not a word, but from like a business perspective, it just realistically wouldn't make any sense uh, to torch the reputation over such a situation. So like these, the, the, these chain link nodes who already have a large enterprise business, they're leveraging their existing reputation to bootstrap their chain link node and bootstrap their usage because they're already a trusted entity. Particularly as you have these telcos who seemingly want to transition into Web3. And so they want to like, I, I, you know, for like Deutsche Telekom, it's pretty clear that they want to run a lot of uh, nodes in different networks, whether that's POS validators, whether that's Chainlink Oracles, you know, they, they, it seems like this is the new telco. And so if, if your intention is to become a leading you know, telco in Web3, well, then your, your business model is really affected. You know, it might, if it's a small incident, it might, it might not affect your large business per se. Like I, I can understand that. But when you're trying to move all the way into Web3, then it really can affect that, you know, new sector of your business. And at the same time, if the report is large enough, it could have larger effects uh, on your, you know, traditional business model. And so that, that's, that's kind of the reputational aspect. And some semi-connected, but but you know maybe slightly on its own is another form of crypto economic security in a network, particularly like Chainlink, is you know legal recourse. And we've we've kind of discussed this already. Don't don't need to go super in depth, but since if you're using known Chainlink nodes, which a lot of them currently are, you know if you're malicious, you could potentially face legal recourse, uh, penalties, fines, maybe you know even jail time if it's super bad. And so again, it's not like mining and DeFi where you can run away. And so and this is going to come with costs. So this again is a if your if your business model is directly uh, fun, you know, reliant on crypto, you get paid in crypto. Well, this is I would consider this a crypto economic incentive for you to act honestly, is if there's you know le legal ramifications for what you do because you're cryptographically signing all the data. So it's it's very easy to identify nodes. That are acting maliciously because you can see it directly on chain. You could tie that to their identity, and you know there could be legal recourse there. So uh, I think that's another form of crypto economic security that people don't consider. But again, if you want to use pseudo anonymous nodes, you know, that's on you. You won't get that guarantee. But again, that comes with other issues. And and the last one is just the simple complexity of the attack. So each of these incentives that we've discussed already are really magnified by the complexity to pull off the attack. Because if it's really hard to do it, it makes it even like, oh, I have a, a greater chance to, to be penalized. I have more revenue that I can learn or I can lose. Like, like it, it, it decreases your percentage of being su successful. For example, the Oracle network is decentralized. So you need to, you need to gain majority control over the nodes to, to even, and to overcome their built-in incentives, just to do a successful attack. Like you alone cannot attack the network. Yeah, and, and the other one is that the, the Oracle reports are isolated. So you, you, by corrupting a single Oracle report, you're not gonna corrupt the whole Chainlink network. You may only gain a small portion of value. If you had Chainlink circuit breakers in place, you could, you know, your, the amount of value you could extract from that is even less. And so, you know, it's not like you could just attack Chainlink and then you could get all this value from Chainlink. Everything can be isolated. And so I think this is a powerful security property of Chainlink. Yeah, this, it's, it's that network of networks model. 
where everything you corrupt one network, but that doesn't mean you corrupt the entire Chainlink network or even every Chainlink user. So when you're really looking at how the Chainlink network works today and how it's going to be working in the future with like under the Chainlink 2.0 model, it works strictly because of the crypto economic incentives, both explicit uh, through the rewards and penalties and implicit through financial exposure, reputation, and all the other dynamics through which you don't want to jeopardize basically at the end of the day, your financial exposure. So the, the, just like many other networks, the crypto economic security of the Chainlink network is not going to be static, or at least for the foreseeable future, there's going to be new, uh, new data sources that appear, new security models that appear, new forms of trusted hardware, cryptography, you know, with Chainlink, because it's not a singleton network, uh, like a blockchain, each Oracle network can be deployed and used in parallel. You know, this allows for like horizontal scalability because you can innovate on new Oracle networks without affecting the security or the reliability of existing uh, Oracle networks, maybe based on slightly uh, older Oracle network models. So effectively, the, the crypto economic security of the Chainlink network is going to evolve and it's going to be more of like a... Uh, users are going to discover what's going to be the best approach based on their experience. I think the overall theme is that Chainlink provides this defense in depth approach. So you can layer on multiple forms of crypto economic security to get a total amount of crypto economic security. So I want, you know, I want more stake or I want more rewards or I want repu- you know, certain nodes with certain reputations or more decentralization. So you can kind of, turn the knob on these different features to get a model that fits your trust assumptions. And that, you know, and that could be more at stake, less at stake, you know, all these different parameters. So I think that's really how the Chainlink network will, is, is best uh, viewed in terms of crypto economic security. Yeah, and like you said, it's, it's, it's not like a chain, but it's more like an onion where each layer is like another layer of security on top. So realistically, you just need one form of security to work properly. For the, uh, the the value the data to be secure, but because you're layering on redundant security, effectively you have you have this defense in depth where you you're protected against multiple different types of attack vectors. So, I think ultimately in the long run, at what 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 we're going to look at of how the future infrastructure is operated today, it's centralized web servers and tech monopolies. But I think coming into the future most of what our applications and agreements are executed upon are going to be based upon these crypto economically secured uh, decentralized networks, these protocols. So uh, Chainlink is going to play a significant role as the data layer, the privacy layer, the connectivity, and everything that blockchains don't do. And that'll be one half of the puzzle combined with these different types of blockchain networks for uh, transaction settlement and for custody of assets. And you combine both of those together and you effectively have a system that's you don't need to trust effectively. You just need to trust that the incentives are going to work properly, but you're not trusted in like a single entity to not screw you over because there is no single entity who has any such capability of doing so. So as these networks begin to secure more value, essentially how they'll scale from more than just like a transaction per, sec- per second perspective is that the cost of attack will have to keep rising so it can secure more value over time. And there really isn't such a thing as like 100% security against every attack or fully fully trustless systems, but you can raise the cost of attack and make it so it's completely impractical. And that's how every decentralized network is going to scale, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Chainlink, where you need to scale the crypto economic security of all these networks. And so 
that's that's kind of a, a broad image of like why all of these explicit and implicit incentives even matter is because it'll allow for these decentralized infrastructure to be built upon which more permissionless censorship resistant applications can be deployed for which DeFi is like a case study at this point. Like DeFi is great, but you know, it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of applications. So this, this, I think it's been a very insightful podcast, a lot of different topics covered in this one in terms of how the Chainlink network is secured today and into the future by leveraging crypto economic security. So do you have a, a, any last input, CEO? Yeah, I think you just you nailed the nailed it on the head at the end. Where it, all this is about is raising the cost of attack. No one can protect against someone who has an unlimited budget. I don't care if you're I don't care how you design it, your Bitcoin, your Ethereum, or whatever. No one can protect against that. So it's all about creating very high cost of attack, which you know d- disincentivizes people from actually performing attacks. And you know that's what all these different features that Chainlink is bringing about uh, are intended to do. Yeah, people. So tend I, to... I, I was going to say too. So so when people like don't get caught up in like every theoretical example, or else you know you'll go nowhere. There's no perfect system. People who always purely focus on theoreticals, you know what this could happen. Well, you'll never actually build anything if that's your model of thinking. Yes, you want to raise these, but there are also things you have to consider. Uh, you know, not everything is practical or not everything is needed for the level in which the state of the network is at. You know, these things, you, you increase the cost of attack as your network scales and value secured. And so, you know, the, the, I, some people, they get too caught in every theoretical and you'll never build anything in that regard. Yeah, I think it's, it's like a difference between pragmatism and like idealism, where idealistically, it would be nice if the chain link network you know, had a hundred trillion dollars staked and there was a hundred million nodes of perfectly reliable nodes, but it's like, you don't get to zero to a hundred in one step. No network, you know, you look at Bitcoin, you look at Ethereum, they didn't start at the end state. They didn't start with tens of thousands of nodes. They started with like one node and one operator and they decentralized continuously over time because that was the most practical approach to achieve the vision of an idealistic future. But, you know, that's, it's like a, you're never going to necessarily reach that, but you can optimize and aim for it by taking more pragmatic routes. Because if you try to shoot for idealism right away, you're never going to take the first step because that first step's never going to be perfect. So you got to start and somewhere. Even, and even you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, these are not perfect networks. Like anyone who like argues with you that these are like perfect networks, they're not. They, they are theoretical attacks that you could do on them. Yeah, and I don't think they'll necessarily ever be a perfect network. Like, you know, God protocols that's kind of like the vision that we're aiming towards. And it's a very idealistic vision, but practically, you know, you have to take it a step at a step. You know, the Chainlink network started with three nodes and it's scaled up to 12 nodes and then 16, then 21 and now 31. And it eventually keeps scaling up with more reputable nodes and more layers of security. And, but like, you don't, you're not going to get everything all at once. You have to layer on these forms of security and these layers of uh, uh, features and capabilities. You know, we're, we're still seeing new, features being launched on the chain like network like keepers so yeah i don't think these networks are ever going to be perfect but we can raise the cost of attack and we can optimize for what people actually need the point is that you don't have to make them perfect you just have to make them very practical and rational and that's what happens the cost of attack is so high and so complex and and irrational that no one does it so i you know that's really the model that we're 
kind of moving towards like it's so impractical that it doesn't happen yeah it's it's playing off a of human nature that humans don't want to lose money and if you can capture the essence and try to make it so the activity that you don't want to happen to be as expensive as possible i mean that's effectively what blockchains and oracles are doing they're just applying that in different ways for different reasons so yeah this is more of a meta conversation about like why this matters and why these networks aren't necessarily going to be perfect but we can optimize so uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. This was, uh, I think, a very insightful podcast. If you haven't listened to the, the previous one where we covered crypto economic security in the, in the context of the Bitcoin and Ethereum network, I would recommend checking that one out as well because this one was very Chainlink focused. But uh, I want to thank everyone for listening and stay incredibly based in LinkBuild.